0: This is another episode of Connecting the Dots podcast. I'm Skip Stewart, Vice President and Chief Improvement Officer for Baptist Memorial Healthcare.
1: Hey everybody, I'm H.F. Mason. I'm a general surgeon and Chief Medical Officer at Baptist Memorial Hospital, DeSoto. And I'm also the Chief Quality Officer
0: for the Baptist system.
2: And hey everyone, I'm Jake Lancaster. I'm an internal medicine physician and the Chief Medical Information Officer for the Baptist system.
0: Well, I am so excited that today we have Oscar Trimboli, and Oscar uh, has an amazing background, but we're going to talk about his new book, Deep Listening, Impact Beyond Words, and I really enjoy this little book. It comes with some practice cards that you can practice the skill of listening, but for right now, uh, Oscar, would you tell our audience a little bit about you and about your background?
3: Thanks, Skip, if we go back to 2008, I'm sitting in a boardroom between Sydney, Seattle and Singapore and we're negotiating the annual budget for the year. This is quite important because people lose their jobs if we get the wrong budget, unlike a medical system where people lose their lives. And at the Mm -hmm. 20 minute mark of a 90 minute meeting, my vice president looks me across the table and says, Oscar, I need to see you immediately at the end of this meeting. So at the 20 minute mark, I'm just thinking how many weeks of salary have I got left in the bank account because I'm surely going to lose my job. The meeting actually finishes early. It finishes at the 70 minute mark. And as I close the door, Tracy says to me, you have no idea what you did at the 20 minute mark, do you? And as I walk towards her to sit back down in my chair, I think to myself, (laughs) I'm getting fired and I don't know why. As I sat down, she said, Oscar, if you could code the way you listen, you could change the world. And despite this profound moment of listening inside on her behalf, the only thing that was going through my head was, woohoo, I haven't been fired. And from that point on, um, I've been coding how to listen into the books, into the playing cards, into the online quiz, into our course, into the various guides and workshops that we do. And along with the deep listening ambassadors, which is a community of like-minded workplace professionals. We're all on a quest to create 100 million deep listeners in the world because we know the cost of not listening is poor quality care. It's a poor patient experience, and it could be the difference between life and death. So that's what's got us here today.
1: Oscar, once again, thank you very much for being here. and. I was looking at your website and and one thing that really stood out to me was, you know, we talk about communicating and most of us, I know I do when when I think about communicating, the first thing I think about is, is is talking and and getting my point across and and saying what I want to say and communicating what I think needs to be communicating communicated. But, but you, 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 you made a point that, that's so simple, but we don't ever think about it, that communication, 50% of it, is, is actually listening or should be listening. Talk to us about that a little bit.
3: Yeah, I think the difference between a good listener is a good listener listens to what is said and a great listener listens to what is not said. And I'll talk about the neuroscience of listening in a moment. But most of us are trained in how to speak. To some extent, uh, communication training is typically about how do you communicate a message, but a really impactful listener will actually alter and shape the way a speaker communicates. When you understand that communication is 50% speaking, 50% listening, I doubt many of us have spent 50% of our professional development time trying to improve our our listening ca- capacity. So. I'll save you all that time and all that professional development. Here's three numbers that you need to know. If you know these three numbers, um, you can almost switch off the podcast and and go and play. 125, 400, 900. 125 words per minute is my speaking speed. 400 words per minute, your listening speed. Now, for some of you, you may be listening to the podcast at 1.5 speed, 1.75 speed, maybe even two times speed. But you can listen much faster than i can speak and as a result you're programmed to be distracted it's happening for you right now while you're listening to me i can't speak anywhere near as fast as you can listen we know blind people people who are visually impaired without distraction can listen at up to three times speed and have complete comprehension now the next number is 900 and if you had to remember any of the three Remember this number, the 900. 900 words per minute is your thinking speed. And if you've done any higher levels of education, your thinking speed may go anywhere up to 2,000 words per minute. The average thinking speed is 900 words per minute, but you could be thinking it up to 2,000. Now, the maths is really important here. If I am thinking at 900 words per minute, but I can only speak at 125 words per minute. It means that in any one-minute session, you're hearing 14% of what I'm thinking. This is why it's crucial to pay attention to what people don't say, as well as what they do say. So Dr. Mason, as you hear those three numbers, I'm curious what's going through your mind.
1: Gosh, you know, I'm just thinking, You know, sometimes, you know, your mind gets ahead of yourself, you know what I mean? You're you're thinking so much that I'm that I'm not slowing down and I'm not I'm not listening. You know, those are pretty. uh, It's pretty eye opening for sure.
2: The The thing that came to my mind when you gave those. Yeah. When you gave those numbers. Is, you know, every physician that's listening to this has had this. Occur to them, um, especially in residency during training, where you're the resident, you go and you interview, you get the history of what is causing their their illness, and then you you have a conversation with your attending. Then you go see the patient as a group, and when you go see them as the group, the patient gives a completely different history or or some new piece of information that is that completely changes the the course. Of of the treatment plan and changes the way you think about how to diagnose them. And, and you know, I actually saw this recently on Twitter where it, it seems very common that the 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 attending gets a different story than what was given to the resident. Uh, and there are debates about why that was occurring. But your insight that that patient is thinking 900 words a minute but only able to communicate 125 words a minute. Um, may, may answer that question of why you get one history from when you go the second time back versus when you ask the first time.
3: Yeah. And there's a, a magnificent book I'd recommend written. Jake, by Dr. your answer is
1: a lot better than mine. <laughs> <laughs> Dr.
3: Danielle Offrey uh, out of uh, New York University Hospital. Uh, she's written a wonderful book called What Patients Say and What Doctors Hear. And she tells a wonderful story where she was the treating physician, where she had a patient come in to see her, a young girl wearing a baseball cap. And Dr. Offrey couldn't quite put her finger on what the issue was and just said to her, look, it's just part of the general aches and pains of life. And she was writing up her case notes as, as the patient left. But as the patient left, they, they hung on to the door handle and said, Doctor, can I ask you one more question before I go? And Dr. Offrey said, oh, of course. Um, she said, do you think there's any coincidence that where I'm feeling all the aches and pains is where my boyfriend is shooting me with a dart gun? And in that moment, Dr. Offrey realised that she was dealing with a domestic violence situation and invited the patient back in. Now, if the patient didn't have the courage or the presence to ask that question, it could have been a dreadful, dreadful outcome. But there are many times where a simple pause. Doctors are trained to listen for similarities. They're trained to be pattern matches their entire uh, education is designed to help you get there quicker. And we know there's, through our research, and 18,000 people that have completed the listening quiz, there's four primary listening orientations that are barriers for people. One of those is the shrewd listener. One of them is the interrupting listener. One of them is the lost listener, and one of them is the dramatic listener, and the shrewd listener is disproportionately represented in helping professions like medicine, like accounting, like the law, where you're listening to what they're saying and going, okay, yep, I know exactly where they're going, and I know the next problem, and I know the next problem. Um, let's just let's just cut to the chase and get. I, I know what they're going to say next, so let me save them some time. But what you don't realise in doing that is that you're missing a huge part of the context, the backstory. And I I was working with a physical therapy group about four years ago. And one of the questions I often ask them to explore is, and what does that mean for you? So in a lot of cases, they're dealing with chronic back conditions for elderly um, patients. And a lot of the times they would give them exercises to do, but they would never do the exercises. They would never do their physical therapy in between treatment sessions. So I simply asked them, what would it mean to you to be physically better off? And they'd start to talk about time with their grandchildren, time with their dogs, more time fishing, more time playing golf. And all of a sudden, as the physical therapist started to listen for that meaning, the amount of exercise completion in between sessions increased by 14 percent. Now, 14 percent is small, but it's much better than zero. And a 14 percent improvement in any system will have a big impact. So the other thing that really good listeners do is they, they listen to what people not only are thinking, but what do they mean when they say that? And this is brought home to me by a wonderful story from Minnesota where jennifer's son christopher came home from school one day and being a great mum, jennifer asked her son christopher honey what did you learn at school today he said oh mummy, i was so excited i learned that three is half of eight and she thought she misheard him and went honey could you say that again now what you don't know about jennifer is she was a school teacher and uh she she double checked and he said yes mummy, we learned that three is half of eight and in that moment jennifer kind of put her hands in her face and thought, what are they teaching kids at school today? So she went to the cupboard and she got out four M&Ms from one packet and four M&Ms from another packet and laid them on the table for Christopher and picked him up and put him on the table and said, Christopher, honey, count how many M&Ms in this row of chocolate soldiers? And he said, four, mummy, and four on the other side. And Jennifer explained, therefore. Four, not three, is half of eight. And with that, Christopher leapt off the table like Superman, went to the cupboard, grabbed a piece of paper. He drew the figure eight on a piece of paper. He folded it in half vertically, and then he folded it in half again and tore it in half and smiled at his mummy and said, Mummy, you'll never understand three is half of eight. And in that moment, Jennifer realised that she was listening for similarities She wasn't listening for differences. She was listening through her own listening filters. And many of us in a workplace listen through the lens that four is the only answer. Now, although four is half of eight and three is half of eight, zero is also half of eight if you fold the eight horizontally rather than vertically. But many of us in our workplaces listen with an orientation that the only correct answer can be four. The science tells us it's full, the answer is full. The reality is that means you're listening to what people say, not what they mean. And the consequences of not listening to what people mean is catastrophic in the worst case scenarios and confusion, chaos and conflict in the narrowest sense as well. So when it comes to, to listening, there are a lot of things that get in our way.
1: That, that kind of that, that brings me to my next question, uh, you know, and you're talking what you're talking about is maybe listening with, with context. And um, you talk about how there, there are five different levels of listening and that each one has to build upon itself, uh, that, that you, you really don't can't move on to the next level. Until you, I don't know if it's master or, or at least until you're aware of that uh, of that lower level of uh, of uh, listening. Could you talk to us a little bit about that?
3: Yes, if you think about these levels as foundational, building on each other, um, with Dr. Mason, it's about consciousness, not mastery at each level. A lot of people say to me, look, Oscar, listening is hard. It's draining. I don't have time for it. And I say, you're doing it all wrong. Uh, Listening is light and easy. If you know how to do it, it it moves from a draining process where you feel like the batteries on your phone are kind of sitting at about 4% and there's a red light blinking on your battery. The the most critical level to listen at is, is level one, which is Listening to yourself, too many people have the last case that they handled, the last conversation. They're still processing that by the time they arrive at the next conversation. So the the critical part of listening is making sure you are available to listen, because most of us turn up to a conversation with a radio station playing a tune, uh, a message that is something from a previous conversation. So for many of us, the really critical thing to do is to, to manage our electronic notifications so we can be present in emergency situations. I, I know you can't switch them off, but we're in medical systems. We're not all in emergency situations. And, and one of the biggest culprits now are these connected watches. Uh, These connected watches just, you know, you you thought the phone was only on your hand, well, now the connected watch is stuck to you. So even that one in managing your notifications. I, I know the research from 1973 that was done by the slot machine industry in Las Vegas to make sure that they grabbed your attention to keep putting money into the slot machine. That same research is used by computer software companies to make sure you respond to the beeps, the buzzes, the little red notifications on your phone and all of that. So all I say is be conscious to use the technology. Don't let the technology use you. Don't react to the technology. And for many of us, just the simple act of drinking a glass of water before we go into a conversation, we'll send a signal to parasympathetic nervous system to go, hey, just everything's okay, settle down. And drink water during a conversation at least every 30 minutes as well. So so level one, Dr. Mason is listening to yourself and then we move through other levels, but 86% of people in our research database of 18,000 people are stuck at level one. They're so distracted. That they can't even have the awareness to start to move to content, context, unsaid, and ultimately
1: meaning. You
2: know, as an aside, and to your point about the wearables, uh, I was reading something um, that was talking about uh, residents in hospitals that had wearables uh, you know, monitoring their heart rate, you know, continuous EKG monitoring. And they were looking at the tracings, and at some points in the night, they would get this uh, what's called a T-wave inversion, which, you know, if you see that in a patient on an EKG, it can be worrisome that they're having some sort of uh, you know, ischemic event or something like that that would know, make you concerned about their heart. Um, and it turned out when they traced it back, it was when they got paged. Uh, so they were getting paged, <laughs> um, and then they would get this event that was showing up physiologically on their on their EKG tracing. Um, which just, just makes me cringe every time I get paged now. Um, <laughs> but going to back to your, you know, deeper into your point on distractions, you know, when smartphones came out, uh, it, it was already a crisis. Everybody's on their phone. You couldn't have a real conversation. Everybody had their phone out at the dinner table, um, responding to text messages, looking at other apps, and you couldn't have a conversation. Now, I feel like in the past couple of years, as Video conferencing has become ubiquitous. All of our meetings are are video based and I'm constantly distracted by email and other things that are going on on my you know, I have two monitors. So you can't tell what I'm, I'm doing on my separate monitor and could be responding in email, but I should be listening to you. Uh, and sometimes I found myself trying to rewind the live video conference so I could hear what was just said because it was something important. I don't know if anybody else has had that sensation. But I just wanted to get your thoughts on on that transition from smartphones being bad as it was to now this new medium where I feel like it's gotten worse to to really feel like you're listening.
3: Yeah, and uh, we can tell when you open your email because it'll wash a white light across your face because most people don't have their email in dark mode. So for the the, the skilled <laughs> listeners out there on video conference, we know when you have that second monitor up with with the email as well. So, Enable dark mode is what I. <laughs> <laughs> yeah.
0: <laughs>
3: also, um, you know, we with on 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 our research work, we we've done some work with the, with the folks over at Stanford. Uh, and the work they've done around Zoom fatigue, humans are not physiologically wired to sit or stand in the identical space for extended periods of time with minimal movement. So Zoom teams, all these video conferencing technologies, if they're used for extended periods of time, there is a diminishing impact that it has. So, we've written the ultimate guide to listening on a video conference. And in that, one of the first things we say to people is Is video the right modality for the conversation to take place? Particularly in paired or three way conversations, a telephone call could be just as effective and it will reduce the amount of time you spend together. The other thing is a good host. For a video conference will change the modality of any conversation every eight minutes. That's about the longest continuous time you could have a workplace person in a space where they can concentrate fully on the concept. Then you may play a video, you may go to chat, you may go to a poll slide, you may go to a breakout room, but it creates movement for the person, mental movement. The other thing you need to do every 15 minutes is to create physical movement for the people in the, in the conversation as well so whenever i'm on video conference i'm always standing up so i know my diaphragm's fully extended and I'll, my back is not in a position that's hunched over a good host will invite everybody to do some kind of movement every 15 minutes as well but a lot of us don't know what good video hygiene is We've just been given a laptop, we've been given a computer with a video, and and off we go. And we try and mimic a lot of face-to-face concepts into the virtual environment. Now, a dirty little secret you don't know about me. I was selling video conferencing software in 1996. Yes, that's how old I am. And it's been wonderful to see the technology evolve, but the biggest evolution of that has really only been internet bandwidth. The underlying technology itself hasn't evolved that much. The other thing to do is uh, if you want to hack, um, make sure you can't see your face and uh, switch your face off so you're not staring into your own face. If you're the host, you should be in gallery view that if you're not the host you should only have the active speaker view on if you're trying to look at a whole group of people simultaneously via video conference the cognitive fatigue on that is huge and, and the work that the stanford group have done around video fatigue there uh, they go through the five different reasons why fatigue impacts people and one of those is um, trying to Look at people in gallery view. You would never do that in a face-to-face meeting. You might get a quick scan of the room, but you'll tend to focus on one or two people and look at their eyes. By the way, in a video conference, if you get distracted, just see if you can notice the colour of the active speaker's eyes, and that will reset your mind back into the conversation as well. So Dr. Lancaster, it's a really tough if you don't know the practical hygiene around video conferencing and the, and that guide, the ultimate guide to video conferencing only came about because clients were screaming at me going, Oscar, that, all that listening stuff you've done in, in face-to-face well, that's good, but we're living in the video world right now, help us out.
2: Well, now I feel bad because it's been 15 minutes and we have not gotten you to do anything physically active during the conference. <laughs>
1: We need to build that into the program, Skip. <laughs> yeah, we sure do. We sure do. Oscar, uh, you know, a lot of us will say, "I'm not a very good listener," or "I'm naturally not a good listener." And other people, and, and I think there's some truth to that. There, there are some people who their personalities make it much easier for them to listen. But, but let's talk about your book a little bit called Deep Listening. And and, and before we started recording, you know, we talked about listening as a skill and and you know, any skill uh, requires practice and, and any skill can be improved upon with practice. And, and, and I'm sure your book uh, delves into that a lot.
3: Well, listening is our birthright. One of the very first skills we learn inside our mother's womb at 32 weeks, we can distinguish the sound of our mother's voice from any other external sound. And two weeks later, we can start to distinguish Beethoven from the Beatles, from Bon Jovi or Justin Beaver. And yet the minute we come into the world, we're kicking and screaming and we start to learn to get people to pay attention to us by speaking or screaming as you would be as a child. So. Listening is something that we are born to do, but a lot of role models around us, we tend to learn to listen the way we are parented. And many people say to me, Oscar, how do I get my children to listen? And I say, well, the good news and the bad news is you're already teaching them that through your example. So when Mm. it comes to our listening, we mentioned earlier on, and you can go to listeningquiz.com and take the seven minute quiz and find out what sort of listening barriers are in your way. There's four primary ways people listen in the world. They listen for emotion. This is the, one of the barriers for the dramatic listener. Uh, they listen through time. This is the barrier for the interrupting listener. They're very productivity orientated. They want to get to the point quicker. The lost listener, they're drifting off, they're distracted. They don't understand their place in this conversation, and this is why the role of the host is really critical to say, you know, hey, we've invited everybody here today. My expectation is from you, from you, from you, from you. But a lot of people may get invited to a meeting and they're not sure of their context, so they'll kind of be vague. And they have a responsibility if the host doesn't explain it what role would you like me to play today or how would you like me to listen? And, and then the final one is is people who listen through problem-solving orientation, they're very tactical, they're very progressive, they they just want to get to the next step, we call those the shrewd listener, but in trying to solve not just the first problem but the second problem and the third problem, they're probably not listening to what that person means, they're probably listening just to the very first 125 words they say. So listening is a skill, it's a practice, and it's also a strategy. My recommendation is there's no perfect listener in the world. Your job is just to have a better next conversation. That's all, just have a better next conversation. And and for many of us, if we can be present, in the conversation, we just want to discover the next 125 words, that's all, if we can just discover the next 125 words, everyone's going to be better off, the speaker, the listener and the outcome, so here's three quick questions that I want to give you to practice, by the way, if you're asking a question that's more than eight words long, it's probably biased, The shorter your questions, the more likely they are to be questions, as opposed to a statement with a question mark at the end.
1: But here are the three questions. I'm very guilty of that. (laughs) Uh,
3: Depending on the context, me too. So don't worry about that, Dr. Mason. Uh, The three questions are, tell me more. The next one is, and what else? Or you can abbreviate that to simply say, and... And then the last one is the most powerful. It's also the shorter. So listen
0: really carefully to this one. Here it is.
3: There's no coincidence that silent and listen share the identical letters. And in the West, mm. we are addicted to filling the silence. In high context cultures like the Inuit, of Canada, uh, China, Korea Japan, the Aborigines of Australia, the Polynesian cultures of the Pacific. Silence is a sign of wisdom and authority and silence is used to presence the group and the other person to start to listen deeply to what they say. When you do these three things, your meetings ironically, paradoxically, become shorter because the speaker gets to what they mean rather than what they say the first time.
0: Well, you now understand, uh, Dr. Mason and Dr. Lancaster, why I tend to be silent on the podcast.
1: (laughs) It's that wisdom, huh, Skip?
0: (laughs) No, in all all seriousness, uh, Oscar, this has been fantastic. Uh, I'm so excited to uh, jump in and, uh, and start reading the book, and I love the idea that you... Have practice cards that come with the book. I just think that's so good. If we're going to call it a skill, then we have to have a way to practice it. And Oscar, thank you so much for the work that you're doing. I know that I uh, follow you on LinkedIn and you're just putting some great content out there. And so on behalf of Baptist Memorial Healthcare, Oscar, I just want to say a big hearty thank you. And we so appreciate your willingness to come on and and speak to us about a subject that we need uh, to continue to improve on. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening. Thanks, Oscar. Thank you.